morning, everyone. I'm going to be reading Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Josh. Grab your seats. Man, guys, we only have two weeks. I know somebody, has, a few of you have actually shared with me when I first shared that we were going to spend 12 weeks in a single prayer in just these short little stints of verses. Some of you were like, oh my gosh, 12 weeks. How are we going to do that? And now we've been, we're 10 weeks in. Today's the session number 10. We've only got two more weeks to go. And the Our Father has been revolutionary for some of us. I know it's been extremely helpful uh, for me and my prayer process it has been um, deeply, deeply moving and uh, shaping. It is really shaping my, my prayer process. So as always, uh, we are committed to an embodied Christianity. I'd love for you to just take a breath now, get aware of what's going on, eyes closed, and just do a little check-in here. Uh, it's a morning. Uh, there's a lot of caffeine in the room, uh, a lot of angst from last week, and a lot of uncertainty about the week in front of us. But we now have 35, 45 minutes here to sit with this passage and to sit with ideas, to commune with our Father through the teaching of Scripture, through the reading, the public reading of His Word. And so songs have been sung, and now, Lord, in our tradition, the sermon is preached and presented to the people of God, and we ask that it would truly stir and move. I'm asking now, Father, in Jesus' name, that there would be such an abundance of healing and restoration and reconciliation in the church, that this generation of the church would be gifted with the experience of reconciled relationships, that denominational lines would blur, that the church would unite again in such a collective vision of the kingdom of God. And Lord, in these coming years where the opinions and the battles and the debates are so heated. I am pleading with you. I am begging you, Holy Spirit. Please give to the people of God a level of maturity and winsomeness. Yes, we're to hold our opinions. Yes, we are to even debate and argue our points. But we, may we be a people of peace, first and foremost. Peacemakers in the world. Bridges between enemies. And finally, Father, as we prepare for this teaching in body and mind and heart and soul to receive and listen and learn, where there are wounds in this room from hurt incurred by another, I pray, Jesus, give these saints a vision of the wounds that you took into your body to heal us, that we might be a people who are able to absorb the wrongs done to us for the sake of the other. We worship you and we love you. And all of God's people said... Amen. It is without question, in my opinion, after 25 years of walking with Jesus, an exhilarating time to be an apprentice of Jesus Christ. And I would also publicly acknowledge, without equivocation, it is extremely difficult to be a Christian in this social moment, surrounded by the particular issues that we face on a day-in, day-out basis. There has been and there is a great shaking happening within 
our cultural systems, and that shaking is shaking the church itself to its very foundations. I would argue that the particular chaotic moment in which we find ourselves right now has been moving under the tectonic plates of our society for at least the last 50, if not 100, if not 150 years. Stirring, moving, brewing, preparing for its eruption out into the public and into the public eye. I would say that 2020 was what I would call an epicenter moment. And most of us are still reeling from what happened all through 2020. The tectonic plates of plague and uncontrollable circumstances and social upheaval and political polarization and racial injustices and fiscal instability and global uncertainty suddenly in 2020 just shifted and moved with a violence and an unpredictability and it released shockwave after shockwave after shockwave that moved our society and wrecked our society's landscape. And through that time, 2020 right up to that day, what we've seen is that our society is splitting along multiple fault lines. Over these last three or four years, I have watched friendships crumble as conversations have become just a little bit too heated in the local coffee shop. Long-standing long partnerships have fallen apart at the local pub as one too many beers begins to loosen the lips and what the other person really thinks sort of just volcanoes through the, the social conventions of politeness and respect for another person's perspective. I have heard stories and watched families splinter as the kid comes home on college break and lays out their definitive stance on whatever issue while slurping down mom's spaghetti, completely oblivious to the quaking offense that their dad is taking at the end of the table. Lifelong members, and this breaks my heart, lifelong members of local churches have left with their fists in the air and fingers pointed, aghast that their fellow Christian could even consider such a view. And so places that were once frequented for their laughter, their life-giving conversation, their harmonious interaction, pubs, coffee shops, family dinner tables, Sunday gatherings, suddenly from 2020 on, we're filled with these hidden fissures into which one of us might fall unintentionally and into which some of us were intentionally trying to shove the other. And today, those cracks in the social landscape, they are deeper and they are wider and they are more severe. Some friendships, some families, and many churches are in crumpled heaps at the bottom of these crevices, never to return. And so, dear friends, it is into this splintered social moment that the great king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, calls you and I to be peacemakers and to be peacemakers by the process and the power of prayer. I believe that the Holy Spirit more than ever is inviting the Christian community to pray more, to post less, to bow down and be silent and to cease with all of our opining and to be peacemakers in the midst of the mess. And so, from the paradigm of the Our Father given to, given to our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago as a model for prayer, we pray for the restoration of family, not just biological blood family, but the restoration of humanity as children of God before our Father in heaven. We pray for alignment of our hearts and our minds for entire societies to come into a place of worshiping and glorifying, glorifying King Jesus, hallowing his name. We are praying for his 
healing to bind up the brokenness. We are praying for provision of needs to be met and for forgiveness for all the harm that has been done to us and all the harm, dear friends, that we have done to one another. And at ground zero, right here at the epicenter of this socially splintered moment, right here at the epicenter of this prayer, is the call for you and I to be a people of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus would instruct us as we pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is what I personally have found to be, without question, one of the most difficult, I would actually argue, maybe the most difficult characteristic of Christian faith and practice. To forgive the one who has harmed you and to love your enemy. The litmus test of maturing Christianity is the practice of absorbing the wrong of another into ourselves, not seeking vengeance, not retaliating, but absorbing it as a means of keeping the relationship intact at cost to ourselves for the sake of the wrongdoer. Now, to this point in the Our Father, I would say that the instructions on how to pray have been somewhat manageable, palatable, easy on the soul, so to speak. But when we arrive at this line, forgive us, as we forgive another, that cuts right to the quick. It divides marrow from bone, soul from spirit, because it calls us to a level of apprenticeship that feels not only wrong and not only unjust, but utterly and completely impossible. Why? Because there is no pain like relational pain. Relational pain sets our limbic system and our central nervous system into a storm. You and I may say that sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt us. But I would argue that the brain completely disagrees. Our brain does not differentiate from a knife cut to the finger or a knife cut to the heart through sharp words spoken. And the issue is that knife cut to the finger will heal within the matter of a few weeks. That knife cut to your soul can sit there and fester for year after year after year. Trauma in the body that remains unprocessed and unhealed, dictating the way that you view the world, the way that you view relationships, the way that you experience your relationship with God himself. So this call to forgiveness from Jesus Christ in this prayer, it puts us face to face with the other, with the other who has hurt us. And the last thing that we want to do is forgive that hurt. What we want is justice. More on that here towards the end of our teaching. This is the big idea for our morning meditation. We're just going to sit here and soak in the topic of forgiveness and our responsibility as Christians in this fractured moment to be the body of Christ, to actually, as Jesus did, absorb the wrong into ourselves for the sake of healing and the restoration of humanity for harmony. So six ideas, six ideas. I know we're only supposed to do three. We're doubling that this morning. You're smart people. You can handle it. Take notes. Six ideas to inform our prayer as we come to this section in the Our Father, starting with this, the very surprising and the very stark reality that forgiveness is a command, loved ones. It's not an option. As an apprentice of Jesus Christ, if you love him, you will obey him. And rooted in your obedience will be a quickness to forgive that may be unprecedented for some of us. Forgiveness is not a suggestion. 
Jesus does not say to you and I, if and when you feel like forgiving, then go on ahead with it. If after time has healed the wounds, then say, I forgive thee. There's no text directing us in such a manner. Jesus assumes, Jesus, uh, he assumes by the tensing of the verbs here that we as his community will forgive immediately and we will move on. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven, past tense, our debtors. The technical Greek language here is this is an aorist active in Matthew's account of Jesus' prayer. What this means is that Jesus is assuming when someone has sinned against us, wounded us, hurt us, said that thing that divided us from them, our immediate response as his apprentices is to immediately forgive a definitive action that says, I forgive you, active, and I move on with my life and with my life with you. How in the world could Jesus ask such a thing from us? How? And the only answer I can supply is because that is what he does for you and I every single nanosecond of our lives. Every breath you breathe is a forgiven breath from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, whom you have wounded so severely to death. To be a forgiven people means we must be a forgiving people. You see, the issue of who did what to who, it's a moot point from the perspective of God because we have all sinned against our God and he has absorbed that wrong into himself through Jesus Christ on the cross and he has actively, in past tense terms, forgiven anything and everything and all that you have ever done against him are doing right now as you sit in your seat in thought life belief and behavior and ever will do. To be forgiven to that degree is to forgive another to that degree. We embody this forgiveness by forgiving without limits, without end. Because Jesus Christ's forgiveness is lavish and without restraint. It is unending, it is constant, and it is complete. You know, Peter, one of my favorite characters in all the Gospels, he approaches Jesus at one point, and he asks him this question about forgiveness, and he frames it in some way as to try to impress Jesus with his maturity and his magnanimity, his big-heartedness. He approaches Jesus, and he says, Lord, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus, I think, probably with a bit of a smile on his face and a, a wink towards the other disciples, says, I tell you, Pete, not seven times, 77 times seven times seven times. Over and over and over, seven times, but 77 times, over and over and over. In other words, Peter, I see that you think you've got a big, magnanimous heart. Some of us in this room this morning we think we have those big, magnanimous hearts until that person's name comes across the forefront of our mind and suddenly we're like, wait, 70 times, seven times, seven times? I'm not forgiving them again. I'm not forgiving them again. I'm not gonna do it. It's tiny. Our magnanimity, our idea of what forgiveness is, it is tiny in comparison to God who forgives absolutely without limits. And so Jesus went on then, after this to illustrate his point, to tell the story of a king who had gone to settle accounts with all of his servants. And this king had been benevolent and generous and lent money to his servants. So one of the servants who owes him the equivalent in our day of hundreds of thousands of dollars, this king has given this man hundreds of thousands of dollars, and this man has absolutely no way to pay back that kind of debt to the king when the king comes 
to settle accounts. And so the man falls before the king and he begs the king for mercy. And the king says, you know what? I wipe it out. I make it clean. I forgive all the debt. It's all gone. And the man stands up and rejoices. Thank you, king. You are so generous. You are so benevolent. You're so kind. And as soon as he left the king's presence, Jesus says, he bumped into a fellow servant that owed him 10 bucks. And he puts the guy in a chokehold and he says, give me my 10 bucks back right now. And the fellow servant in the chokehold says, I don't have the money. I don't have the money. I can't pay you back right now. So this guy has the lawyers come after him because he's got the money now because he was forgiven. (laughs) all the money. He has the lawyers come after him. He bankrupts him, puts him out of his home, puts his entire family in prison. The fellow servants see what this schmuck does, and they go back to the king, and they say, this is what this schmuck did. What are you going to do about it, King Jesus? Jesus concludes the story saying, then the master called the the wicked servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all of your debt. I canceled all of your debt. I canceled all, all of your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart, from your heart, from your innermost being, from the place where in your body your nervous system kicks in when that name comes up and you go, from that place, Jesus says. Now, the king took this so seriously, the king took this so seriously, dear ones, that he said to withhold forgiveness from another was to put our soul in danger of not being able to receive God's forgiveness. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. That is absolutely terrifying to me. Forgiveness is the foundation and the fuel of our relationship with God. Therefore, forgiveness is the foundation and the fuel of our relationships with one another, of, with all of humanity. The space between heaven and earth is most thin where forgiveness of the other reigns. Forgiveness is actually what forms intimate community. What we're going for here at Neighbors Church and our community groups and actually really succeeding at by God's grace through his spirit is you walk into the room and joy is what you experience when their eyes light up because you're there. And guess what? Over time and through seasons of life, as you stand fast in that community, you're going to step on toes and you want to know what will form intimacy in that community? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. If you think about the most intimate relationships that humans engage in, marriage and family are probably the most intimate for the singles in here, those deep covenant friendships, those long, deep covenant friendships that you've been in with people, What makes those relationships, covenant friendships, covenant marriage, family systems, what makes them healthy? Vibrant ones are built on layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of easygoing, no problem, no conflict. (laughs) What? That's ridiculous. Vibrant, healthy family, marriage, and friendship systems are built on layer upon layer, process of process, 70 times 7 of moments of forgiveness. Dysfunctional and divisive relational systems, from churches to marriages to families to friendships, are built on tit-for-tat, grudge-keeping, hatchet-burying, with the handle still sticking up, just in case I need it for the next fight. That's dysfunctional. 
And so forgiveness is the means by which we form intimate community. And the closer that we get to one another, the more constant and certain our need for forgiveness will be. This means that if we want closeness and intimacy in our personal lives, we want vibrant community. Forgiveness of the other and being forgiven by the other will be what forms that. Remember, here at Neighbors, as I said by way of introduction, we have the ideal of what the kingdom of God community is supposed to look like on earth as it is in heaven. But we also are very honest about the real in this life, the already not yet of communities. We are adamant at Neighbors. We will never stop pursuing the ideal of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We want our community groups to be people living in harmony with one another, truly caring for one another, bearing each other's burdens, creating equality and dignity, dignity regardless of social background or social position, and on and on it goes. That's the ideal. That's the vision. That's what we're going for. But we are very forthright and honest and we live within the real of community, which means we step on toes. We say things that we wish we wouldn't have said. We misunderstand each other. We forget. We're bad at texting the group thread. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm the worst. I know. I told you guys, respond to text threads, and now I'm not responding to text threads. Please forgive me. <laughs> Forgiveness must be a normal and a regular part of healthy relational systems. Do you guys realize we have the New Testament because Paul was trying to keep churches together based on forgiveness? That's why you have the New Testament sitting on your laps or in your phones this morning. The New Testament, huge swaths of it were written by the apostles to local Jesus communities to try to keep them united instead of divided. He was calling, they were calling them to be gracious in their forgiveness and their acceptance of one another, regardless of their, by their way, their social positions, their political positions. They were just their ethnic, their ethnic positions, their racial positions. In some cases, their positions on sexuality. They were so divided in the first century that we have the New Testament trying to keep them together. Paul's trying to keep a meltdown from happening in the church in Galatia because of racial and religious tensions. It's the exact same thing. We have the entire book of Romans because he was trying to keep basically Jew and Gentiles, from dividing from one another in Rome. In Corinth, Corinth was such a frat party of the church. He's like, he's trying to quell the hurt and pain of the church just keeping social hierarchies of the world in place during the Sunday gatherings. He was also trying to quell the pain and all the division that came from that church was living in uninhibited drunkenness and brazen sexual immorality and all the fallout that comes from that type of behavior within a community. Paul was trying to bring forgiveness in the midst of that. Paul actually calls out a squabble by name in the church of Philippi. He says in Philippians chapter 4, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. I like the New Living Translation. They get Paul's angst even better. I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. How would you like to be remembered for all of biblical perpetuity and history as the couple that got called out? I do think, I do think though, that in the realms of the heavens right now, there are those, maybe millions within the Christian community who are remembered for their disagreements before the throne of God, not their agreements. I've been one of those people over many years. These people, whoever they were, Syntyche and Yodia, they had served alongside Paul. They'd been on mission together. They'd spent time praying with each other. They were caring for one another. Something had broken the relationship, probably a political cycle in 2024. <laughs> Something had broken it. Some tweet on X, formerly known as Twitter, had been made. 
Some opinion had been shared on Instagram, to which Yodia was like, what? I didn't know she thought like that, and it was off to the races. And the means, the only means by which the mission of God would be restored and Paul's broken heart would be healed and this broken community in Philippi would be healed and the breaking of the mission of God into the world would be healed was through forgiveness. The means by which he does these things is through reconciled communities. If the mission of God is to reconcile humanity to himself through forgiveness, then the people of God must be the forerunners in living in reconciled communities and embodying that reality one unto the other. And it is terribly difficult. And Satan, the Satan, the accuser, the chaos monster, the divider, he knows this. And so we have this malevolent creature and his minions who are continually whispering and trying to divide and lie and stir and agitate and exacerbate relational tensions. This is why Paul forgave all the crazy shenanigans that were going on in Corinth. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, anyone you forgive, I forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. When we harbor unforgiveness, we can unintentionally and we are unconsciously partnering with the enemy of God and we are unconsciously and unintentionally carrying out his schemes in his war against God and against humanity. Therefore, it is through forgiveness that we war against Satan. It is for and through forgiveness that Satan must flee and the Holy Spirit flows. If you look through the history of revival in Christian tr tradition and Christian history, almost every story of great revival that breaks out through the generations of Christian history, almost every story, when you trace it down, it has some story of a, of a community of Christians, much like ours, beginning to truly confess sin, beginning to cast off the restraints of the world, saying, I want Jesus Christ more than anything. And somewhere in the midst of that renewing moment, Christians begin to go after one another, saying, I am sorry for what happened I'm sorry for what I've said. I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for how I hurt you. Please forgive me. And the other Christian says, I forgive you. And Satan flees and the Holy Spirit just moves. I am pleading with the church, our community here and abroad, that as we pray for renewal, which we are, we cannot give Satan a foothold in our hearts nor Satan a foothold in this house of prayer. We cannot grieve and quench the spirit. We want to become conduits for his power and compassion and mercy to flow through us. So give me another 20 minutes now to answer the question that's burning on everybody's hearts and minds. How? How? Because I'm angry. How? Because what they said was stupid. How can we actually forgive? How can we do this? How can Jesus ask this of me? It's too much. Dan, you don't know the pain that this person caused in my life. It's not fair. It doesn't feel right. How could I just absorb that into myself and not seek vengeance and justice? These issues, Dan, that we're talking about that have divided us, they are important issues. Life and death stuff in some cases. Where's the justice? And that's the key. Forgiveness is about justice. And this is what requires tremendous humility on the part of the Christian community. Forgiveness feels impossible for two reasons. One, we are hardwired for justice. We cannot tell our body and our system and our soul to be wronged or to see wrong and to say nothing needs to come of that. No recompense needs to happen. No restoration. We can't do it. 
We are Trinitarian image-bearing beings, which means we are wired for righteousness and rightness. And so when we see wrong, we want to make it right. We cannot do anything less than that. So forgiveness is difficult because we want that justice to happen. But also the things that divide us, I recognize of all people, these are things of great importance. It's no small potatoes that people get in scuffs about. Who knows what was going on with Yodi and Sintiki? Maybe the tweet that she made, maybe the Instagram post that she posted had to deal with something that was very powerful and very painful. Okay? Now, as I watched the dumpster fire break out and continue to just kind of rage through churches and family systems and friend systems since the social earthquakes of 2020, here's what I heard, and I found this in myself too. I heard extremely mature and reasonable people who were justifiably passionate about very important issues and I say this to myself as well, who were also simultaneously unable to trust God to the degree that God understood all points of the argument actually better than myself and could not let it go. That's what I saw. At somewhere along the line, we decided in these dumpster fires of relationships that God maybe didn't know as much as we did, that maybe we actually had the absolute total truth, therefore we had to not forgive and divide from the other. If forgiveness is about justice, then we need to always remember in our moments of wounding and hurt that God wants justice for wrongs done to us and done around us way more than we do. Way more than we do. As I get up and trudge my way through the news feed every morning and I find anger rising and I find frustration rising. I know that those are just broken little breakthroughs of God's anger and frustration with this world. His passion is for justice. And God will, Christian theology has taught for centuries now, God will bring full, total, and complete justice for every horrific and wrong act ever done by anyone. He did so through Jesus on the cross. That was justice. And so mercy is available to all, and he will do so in the fullness of time. Just give me another 10 minutes here. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So to forgive is to first honor the fact that we ache for justice, but it is to simultaneously remember that justice is not ours to administer. <laughs> Jesus absorbed the punishment of sin. Therefore, we must first pray that the punishment of another's sin will come under the mercy of the cross as the punishment for our sin has come under the mercy of the cross. Because if their sin doesn't come under the mercy of the cross, God's vengeance is coming and that is absolutely terrifying. The vision of justice a vision of certain justice, either upon, just, upon Jesus or a future justice at the return of Jesus, is what frees us to forgive and to genuinely love our enemy from the heart, from the heart. Again, as I said, I've been praying daily over the people of Gaza and Israel. Every time I get through my newsfeed and I see another picture of a kid blown up, I just start praying. I have been listening to the rage and I've been listening on both sides to all of everybody who proclaims to be informed. And they're all stepping into a 6,000-year conflict with social commentary over the last 100 years from a democratic, liberal, individualized community. They are not informed. God is informed on this particular conflict. 
Yes, we should continue reading. Yes, we should continue thinking. Yes, we should continue praying. But what I am finding in my own personal sort of journey in this moment watching the global events around us is this idea that somebody's going to stand up and say, I'm the truly informed one. Let me bring peace to Israel and Gaza. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. When I pray for Netanyahu or for the leaders of Hamas, both equally, when I pray for the innocent child and the man that shot him, equally, I pray in light of justice. And I find myself, though my body is angry and wounded and hurting and confused, God, how can this continue on? I also simultaneously trust the love of my father who is very capable. And into his hands, I commit my own issues of justice. He will sort it out. He will set it right. He will avenge all the wrongdoing. And so to the best of my ability, in my capacity, with my little myopic, tiny perspective, I will pray in light of true justice. And yes, there's anger and longing there. But I have found, as I've prayed more deeply in light of the Our Father and forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us and sin against this world, I fear the replications of the violence on both sides. And none of us should be reveling in possible outcomes of eternal damnation for the one who does not repent. Even if that's what seems just, Alexis and I are watching, a couple years ago we read uh, All the Light We Cannot See and they've made a four-part series on Netflix, which is a, it's another Nazi story. And I, just last night, I just found myself sitting there like, man, this guy, if this guy was a real character, I hope he's burning in hell right now. And then suddenly I was just struck to the core. And this is why. Satan's heart is to revel in more hatred Satan's desire and strategy is to get us to exhibit more rage, more destruction. But this prayer of forgiveness and Jesus' spirit counterforms our souls otherwise. And so as we pray this, it is his heart within our heart that transforms our limited sense of judgment. And it casts the fear of God within our soul for any soul, for any soul that will face his judgment without mercy. It is a litmus test, friends, for maturing Christianity to pray for some of the most horrific and evil people on the planet. Lord, have mercy. Lord, save. Lord, forgive. And what I'm finding and what I've known for many years now is that forgiveness is actually a moment that is constant. It is a constant moment. If justice is the foundation of forgiveness then we must also recognize that the moment of forgiveness becomes a constant and ongoing process throughout our lives. So Lex and I have been married for 22 years. We've been leading churches for 20 years of that. And we have found that forgiveness of an issue or forgiveness of an event or forgiveness of a person, it becomes an ongoing over and over and over over a long time process. Because after there has been pain in a relational setting, depending on how deep the cuts went, the pain takes time to heal. It comes and goes in waves. You'll think that you've moved away from whatever it was that happened, whatever it was that was said, and then something will happen where all of a sudden all that pain, all that anger, all that longing for justice just leaps right to the fore. And that is another moment, another moment, 70 times 7 to say... I'm going to forgive in this moment. I'm going to hand it over. And that means, friends, hear this very clearly. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. This is a terrible misunderstanding in the Christian community about the nature of forgiveness. And so if we just wipe clean the pain and it's just gone, that's, that's not how it works. 
Our biology and our neurochemistry and the Spirit of God do not work that way. These moments of pain are literally indelibly planted into our nervous system. And so to forgive is actually to be able to remember in detail what was done and also to recognize that our nervous system will twist and turn the memory and this is, this is so clinically proven over and over and over, that our memories of whatever event occurred are often biased towards our own perspective. And so we do remember the details. We do remember what was said. He said, she said, I said, they said. This is what went down. And then we simultaneously say, and some of that is probably a little bit murky at this point, but I don't have to forget what I can't do is sit and mull over and recreate the story over and over and over. So we do remember the detail. We learn from it. We create boundaries, which is important. We grow from it. We trust that the other parties involved are growing from it. Then we move forward, trusting God's love to transform and heal all involved. And recognize this, friends. In some scenarios, the relationship will never be restored to what it was prior to the breaking. I think that's another myth of Christian forgiveness. Oh, we were best friends, and then they stabbed me in the back, and then there was this long process of forgiveness, and now we're best friends again. I just haven't seen it happen. Maybe I'm just a complete cynic. I'm sorry. What I've seen is I have forgiven, and we are relationally tethered to one another. I care for this person. I'm still scared to death of them. Therefore, I will hang out with them, and I will have a boundary in my own heart, and they'll have a boundary probably around me, because usually when there's a need for forgiveness, both parties have been hurt. Surprise, surprise. But both parties are hurting. Both parties are confused. Both parties feel bad. Both parties did something wrong. Usually, usually. In some scenarios with forgiveness, um, the relationship won't be restored to what it was, and it shouldn't be, but it will be still intact. And in some cases, like in abuse situations, and I think the church has failed radically in this place, in abuse situations, that relationship has to be severed physically forever. I think the church has failed in abuse situations where women have been required to stay, women in particular have been required to stay in situations that were actually endangering. And we as a church have a responsibility for that woman to deliver her from the oppressive place and to walk with her through the lifelong journey of the trauma of her body, forgiving. She doesn't have to be with that person. She doesn't have to be in physical proximity to that person, but her heart needs to be freed to forgive as Jesus has forgiven. And guys, if you think that's lavish and crazy, when you read through Christian history, the stories of forgiveness that the saints have offered to people, it's unbelievable. At the top of the list, of course, is Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom spent time suffering in Ravensbrück uh, concentration camp during World War II with her sister. And it was after World War II that Ten Boom would then travel around the world speaking on the need for forgiveness. And she tells this one story. She's speaking at an event, and a former SS guard approaches her. And at the end of the talk, he says, how grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. He put his hand out to shake hers. Corey said, and I, who have preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, 
the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. And that's what I want to close with this morning. Forgiveness is this world's only hope. I don't care where you stand on the political spectrum, on the issues at hand in this, in this moment. I don't care. What I care about, if you claim Christ as Lord and Savior, is that you become a source of hope in this world. Please. Not another voice dividing, raging, hating I don't think that's the voice of Jesus. Like Ten Boom, I think we are to extend our hand and experience a love for people that we cannot stand, for people that we do not understand, and experience ourselves becoming a conduit of hope and forgiveness because our society is screaming for social reform and transformation. The problem is our society says transformation will come by tear down the systems, but then our society doesn't offer any system forward. And Jesus offers the kingdom of God. We decry the wrongs that are done by others and we cry for justice, but our society cannot see the wrongs that we do ourselves. And so we wave banners of human vengeance in the name of justice. And a society without forgiveness has nothing to resort to but reciprocal brutality and an ever-increasing spiral of revenge and vengeance. Our society wants justice, but not forgiveness. But in the economy of God, you cannot have justice without forgiveness, and you cannot have forgiveness without justice. You can't have one without the other. Jesus Christ on the cross is justice, period. He is the mediating just recompense. He absorbs the wrong and the wrath of God coming for all wrong on the cross. And so without the cross and forgiveness of each other, justice just becomes blind vengeance, unchecked and unending, hence 6,000 years of what we see in that little tiny strip of land nestled up against the Mediterranean. An unending reciprocal cycle of vengeance and revenge and no forgiveness. That's an extreme, and I hope it doesn't sound reductionistic, that is an extreme clarifying vision of what's happening in the world and the conflicts around the world and inability for humanity to forgive. My system will tear down your system and I will rule. Without the cross, justice is just blind vengeance. But then in like matter, and this is what's so important for us in this room that are agitated right now, forgiveness without actual justice is the epitome of injustice. Does everybody understand that? Forgiveness is not letting go of justice. That would be unjust. The brokenness must be repaired. The wound must be healed. The wrong must be made right. And so if heaven is to pervade earth, it will do so and can only do so through embodied forgiveness in the midst of Jesus's reconciled human communities where the cross and justice and mercy abide. We Christians have been given the grave and the mighty responsibility of absorbing the wrongs of this world into ourselves, just as Jesus did for us, so that we, through constant lifelong moments of forgiveness, can be healing and restorative community, so that every human on this planet 
can come in and experience something that ends the cycles of vengeance and revenge and brutality and tearing down. This is a great challenge for us. I think even a teaching like this is challenging. I'm certain I need to get some coffee with a couple of you because you're just, you're just boiling in there right now and I understand, I understand. And where we can find peace amongst each other, there will be a thin space where heaven invades earth. It will require us to be strong and courageous in ways that we haven't. It will require us in all honesty to be deeply humble, humble in a way that our culture just has no category for, no category for a level of humility and winsomeness and carefulness in speech and in posture. And it will require us right now for you to hold as we come to communion your enemy at the forefront of your mind and to feel your central nervous system light up and your limbic system say, oh, I still get a shot of lightning through my body when I hear that name, when I think about that situation. This is where we come to communion and we remember that Jesus Christ took the true shot of lightning through his body and that vengeance went through him and he died for that person. Again, just to be clear, I'm not saying that this means you call up that person this afternoon like, hey, let's go on vacation together. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But it does mean within your heart of hearts, deep in the limbic, deep in the nervous system, when that name comes up, yes, the lightning's there and that lightning leads you immediately to say, Father, in light of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for this person's sin and my own sin against them and against this world and against you, I forgive again and again and again and again. And I have found to give you hope, dearest, dearest church, just to give you hope. Quarter center of walking with Jesus, it does get better. You will find that you can have people say horrible things to you little parting of the curtain in the pastoral world. People will say obnoxious, horrible things that are so far from the truth about who you are to your face. And, and you'll discover that the old flesh is there. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to hit you right now. <laughs> and then you don't. And then over years, you begin to realize, oh, I am actually forgiving. And then that name comes up. And you're like, oh yeah, there's that bolt of lightning. But you build a pattern of forgiving and forgiving, and forgiving. And, and in some cases, the, the relationship is restored. It's restored in some semblance. It's different. It's definitely different, but it's restored. In the context of covenant friendships, like this church, our communities are covenanted to each other. S friends that are covenanted to each other, not just for this life, but for generations, prayerfully. In marriages and family systems, there's no other way forward. You will have no friends if you're not a forgiving person at least not real friends. You'll have a shallow semblance of relationships, but you're not going to have intimate friends. But if you can, in the way of Jesus, practice forgiveness over and over and over, across every level, oh, then you'll know what it is when Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Then you'll know what it is to be a friend and to be friended, to be a forgiven friend. Oh, my pastor's heart is just heavy. I don't want you left in a space of weightiness. And so we're going to go to communion where this is where the burdens are lifted. Communion is where he takes it off. Communion is where we are forgiven. Communion is where we train our limbic and nervous system and all the thing that's going off in us to rest in the goodness of God. My father, I, I, I pray this morning for my church here, my family. Weighty words and sometimes, Lord, I, in my own extreme personality, 
uh, struggle to tone these things in such a way to make them more palatable. And yet, even as I pray that out loud, when I think about what I'm watching in the world, when I think about what I'm seeing, and when I listen to the Christian community, I'm burdened, Lord. I'm burdened. I want to talk like you. I want to be a peacemaker like you. I want to stand in the gap between enemies and see them become family. And it is idealistic to sit here and pray, Lord, for peace in the Middle East, but I don't know what else to do. It's not like me sending out a tweet to a couple hundred friends is going to change the situation. So please, I pray in Jesus' name for these Christians in this room, in this moment, birth in them hearts of prayer. And I pray as they hold their enemies in front of their hearts and minds, bring their enemies to the foot of the cross and let your mercy and true justice wash over them. Bring healing and restoration. I pray where there are squabbles and conflict and and wounding and misunderstandings, even right here in our little church, in our communities, please bring harmony this week from even this teaching. Let a seed be planted that there will be such rich harmony. And I pray more than ever, God, that our love would abound for one another, that we would care for each other with humility and gentleness and wisdom and winsomeness. Lord, work the miracle of forgiveness in this church. And I pray that as you bring in the droves of the lost and the burdened and the beat down, God, that they would experience harmony and forgiveness in your presence. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.